prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would use uh, this little time we spend looking into things of your word to strengthen men in this room, and by extension, men who are not in this room, who perhaps have absolutely no intention of ever being in a room like this or a church building, a church meeting. Father, I pray that you'll use material here, again, simply because it's your word, uh, to impact men and thus to impact many beyond this room. We are so thankful that you are such a great God who reaches down to sinners like us. We are all needy. We all need to grow. We all need to kill sin, every one of us in this room. And so we pray that looking into your word together tonight would be an impetus to do just that. We pray this to the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Recently, I read a story about a Chicago man, a young guy, and he began substitute teaching. So he was substitute teaching in a Chicago area public school. And at recess, he found, to his surprise, that the students began congregating around him. This is a true story. He didn't know why at first, but uh, he, he came one day, they started doing this. He came back, they did it again. Every time he substitute taught, he ended up with a crowd around him like he was a sort of young Justin Bieber or something. And he talked in his piece that he wrote for a magazine about why this was so. He eventually realized that it wasn't his athletic ability or his jokes or something like this. It was because he's a man. He was a man. And these primarily boys in the Chicago public school uh, had grown up in a fatherless culture, in a, in a culture of fatherlessness. And simply, this is, this is, I'm paraphrasing, but this is precisely the point he made in this piece. Simply to see a man and be around a man who took an interest in, in these boys, in these kids, was altogether unusual, even life-changing, at least for a recess time, for these kids. Why start there? I start there because this is not an uncommon experience today. We are in a culture in which men seem to have disappeared, at least in some sectors and places in American life. All around us, if you really have your eyes open, in your neighborhood, in your school, in a given community, places you work perhaps, the list can go on, you will find places where there are almost no men. It's that simple. They're just not around. And it's not simply a matter of class or race or something like this. There are different versions of the crisis of manhood that we see today, of the crisis of fatherlessness, especially in American culture. In other words, this is just as much a white-collar problem as it is a blue-collar problem. Men are increasingly hard to find. Some of you follow economic statistics. Uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released a report not long ago uh, that showed that basically 7 million men dropped out of the American workforce in the last few years. Let me repeat that stat for you. 7 million men have basically vanished from the American workforce. Their jobs have been eliminated. Uh, they've, they, they're shuffling you know, between employment positions, these sorts of things. Uh, they're in a crisis in terms of their marriage. These and other factors have contributed to a culture where you have hundreds of thousands, even millions of men who are basically nowhere to be found. In 1970, men earned 60% of all college degrees. By 2006, 43% of college degrees were earned by men. 
1950, 5% of men at the prime working age were unemployed. As of 2013, 20% were not working. That is four times greater, 400 times, uh, 400%, excuse me, uh, a greater rate. The out-of-wedlock birth rate in America today, uh, as you may have heard, is at a greater than 40% rate. Everybody, please just come in. You are, you are warmly welcomed here. Come on in. We are taking attendance, so you will be marked as late. But please, come on in. Let me say this again. The out-of-wedlock birth rate, more than 40% in America today. In 1960, only 11% of children in the U.S. lived apart from their fathers. In 2010, that percentage, 27%. 27% of children in America. This is America. This isn't a so-called third world country, right? This is America. 27% of children have no dad in the home. Men are often portrayed as strong. But here's the deal with men. Men are volatile. Men are volatile. Men die by suicide 3.5 times at a greater rate than women. So for every one woman who commits suicide, uh, three and a half, or you know, in statistical terms, three and a half men do. Men commit more acts of violence than women, far more acts of violence. The U.S. Department of Justice found recently that 75.6% of all offenders were Male. So for out of every four acts of violence, three of them are committed by men. One writer said this about men to sum up the point that I am making. Women are often talked about as emotional with some justification. Okay. But think about this with me, will you, for a minute? When women get upset, stereotypically, they eat ice cream and take a bath. When men get upset, they drink beer and try to kill someone. <laughs> it's a humorous point, but there's some seriousness here, isn't there? Men are volatile. You know, many of us are familiar with various images in the pop culture about the strength of men, right? You know, the, the taciturn man, the man in the action hero film who, you know, nobody can... Nobody can knock off his horse or something. But in truth, when you actually look at men, you see that they're volatile, that they desperately need investment and involvement. You could say it this way. There are a lot of men and boys, well before they become men, who have no shield today. They are unprotected. They are unforgotten. In our culture, it's very common to talk about how to lift girls up today. This is now common to, to hear discussions like this. And this, is, this talk and my worldview does not include one sex triumphing over the other. I want both to flourish in Jesus Christ. But, but just note this, mark this. We're in a culture that doesn't really talk much about struggling boys. It's just not really a topic that's on the table. Not in a sustained way. It's easy not to care about men today. And by the way, this is true for men of different races. It's true uh, about white, poor men, especially men today in this, uh, of this type are effectively absent from the cultural conversation about who is struggling and who is doing well. This is a problem that touches on all corners of American society. So what am I trying to say? What do men need today? 
They need what they have always needed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what men need, all men and all women. But for our purposes, I want to look with you uh, in the time that we have, just the short amount of time we have, at uh, four different points that touch on how the gospel transforms men. Okay? That's That's all we're after tonight. So point one out of four. The gospel saves sinners, and this includes men. We think of 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the Apostle Paul writes. So more than a pat on the head, more than an economically strong home, more than four weeks of vacation a year, this is what we all need as human beings. We all need this gospel, this saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So you have heard me say, and try to sketch out in a cultural sense, just how much of a crisis we are in in terms of manhood. This is a perpetual crisis in some form because all sinners always need the gospel. But let's zero in. Men need the gospel. We need the good news that Jesus died on the cross to wash our sins clean and rose from the grave to vindicate us before the throne of God because apart from this message, we will suffer forever in hell. That is why we need the gospel message. The gospel message is not fundamentally about self-improvement. The gospel message is not fundamentally, excuse me, about self-esteem. It is not primarily about um, lifting our heads up in some form. The gospel message is fundamentally delivered in cosmic terms. We have a soul. We have a soul that's going to live forever in either hell or in heaven. And that is the problem that the gospel of grace in the name of Jesus Christ fundamentally solves. It solves that cosmic problem. Every soul stands condemned before a holy God. The gospel, brothers, is not first and foremost about you and me, is it? The gospel, the good news that Jesus died and rose for sinners like us, the gospel is fundamentally about God. It's about a holy God and how he, though he is upset at our sin, though he is wrathful, against our sin, how he can be placated, how he can be satisfied, how he can no longer be angry against us. The gospel is first, before it is about us, about God. It's God's gospel. He owns it. It's his message. And he has made very clear in his word, in his scripture, that our fundamental problem is not self-esteem. It's not psychotherapy. It, It is not economic. Our fundamental problem is spiritual. Every single person you see on the street, every person in your workplace, every person in your school has the same problem you and I do as sinners in Adam. We have no gospel. We have no grace in us. No person can generate goodness out of their own heart such that God says, you know what? You are the first. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you into heaven without Jesus Christ. Every single man needs the gospel of grace. Even as a believer, when you do come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you and I have an inexhaustible need for Jesus. There's never a point at which we say, I've got enough Jesus. I am sanctified enough. I now know God enough. I have now studied the Bible 
enough. This is one of the really interesting things about Christianity. And one of the things that will actually appeal to men is to, to understand that you don't, you don't check a box and then check out. As a Christian, you always are seeking to grow and improve and mature by the power of the gospel. You and I have an inexhaustible need for Jesus and his gospel. One of the things that I think men need to hear is that even if they have not lived for the Lord, even if they have lived for the flesh, you know, for sin, God will restore the years that the locust has eaten. And this is an incredible promise for for sinners like you and like me. Even if you, sitting where you sit now, only you fully know your history. Even if you look back and you see shame and you see sin, even if you look at your present and you think about your marriage and you think about how perhaps it's not where it should be, you think about your kids, you feel the pull like I feel to be selfish in your own home and not invest in your children and not give them enough time. Here is the amazing news about Christianity. God forgives sinners like us. God doesn't ask us to lift ourselves up to a standard so that he can start working on us. And only then will he let us into his program of godliness. God takes us at our worst and changes us. This is what Christianity... Christianity is a, is a faith that stands out in the world. It's a strange faith. Because American society, American culture, for example, loves winners. We love winners. We want to back a winner. There are a lot of people right now who are looking to cash in on a political victory, for example, in New York City right now. They're trying to get on a cabinet, presidential cabinet, for example. And that president-elect has talked in his own life, about how he likes winners. We as a culture like winners. Here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity is for losers. It's for losers. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus coming to earth, is not a happy little moment for a Christmas party. The incarnation is a signal to every single human being, man and woman, boy or girl, that our own efforts at saving ourselves and working our way to God fail. And fail miserably. The incarnation is celebrated as this wondrous event, God becoming man in baby form. And it is wondrous. It's, it's awesome. I'm having the Christmas parties at my home like you are. But what the incarnation tells us is that we're a failure. You ever think about that? Honestly, it tells you you can't find your way to God. You cannot save yourself. All your devices are going to fail. We spend so much time and energy in this society, in this culture, making ourselves look acceptable and look successful and look like a winner. And in truth, every person outside of the grace of Jesus Christ is a loser. It's true. We have nothing to offer God fundamentally. And yet God, in his kindness, condescends to love us. So, hear me clearly today. If, uh, if, if you're sitting here and you recognize that sin is a problem in your life, uh, you're not alone. <laughs> We're all there. But you also need to recognize that God loves to take people who are a mess, people who are ruined, and he loves to remake them. You think of Ezekiel 16, for example. You think of the baby lying in its blood, which represents the city of Jerusalem in that Ezekiel passage. But it's a powerful image 
um, even beyond that, that text, that context, I should say. There's a baby lying in its blood, gasping, about to die. And, and God pictures himself in Ezekiel 16, 1 through 14, as coming to that little child and, and picking it up and saving it and rescuing it. And that is what God does for every last one of us. The world loves not simply winners. The world loves to pick winners and losers. It does. You can, you can think of, I'm guessing many of you, a time when somebody told you you weren't going to be something. You know, you weren't, I don't know, it could be lots of things. You weren't going to graduate high school. You weren't going to graduate college. You weren't going to make X team. You weren't going to play in the band. I don't know what it was, okay? You weren't going to make it in business. Your small business is going to fail. Everybody hears words like this. We're in a, we're in a world that is cursed by sin, and so we find ourselves among people like ourselves who like to tell other people how they're going to turn out. The world never shows that it, it labels certain people low-worth individuals than in abortion culture. Think about abortion culture. What is abortion? Abortion is nothing other at its core, at, at some level, than somebody assigning an infant in a womb the status of not worthy of life, right? Low-worth individual shouldn't be brought into the world because you're going to be a loser, frankly. It's going to be an awful life. So don't even, don't even birth a child. Kill them. Here's the thing we need to know as Christians. There are no low-worth individuals in the kingdom of God. There's not one. There is not one. The most disabled person who knows Christ has the greatest worth imaginable. Mm -hmm. The person who can do very little for themselves, who cannot care for themselves, the person who is socially awkward, the person who has few friends, the person who is not going to climb any ladders, these and any other type you can imagine, they are not low worth. There is no individual we look at as believers and say, they have no worth, they have no value, they are going to be a loser. Every, every person outside of the church every human being bears the image of god is made in the very likeness of god himself is a living walking emblem of a greater king in the cosmos every human life in the christian worldview from genesis 1 26 and 27 has more value and dignity than we could ever capture but think about also secondarily what jesus does for individuals jesus lifts up our head and gives us a place in his kingdom. Every person of every type and every ability level has literally, literally infinite dignity, worth, value, and potential. Not in a Disney-fied way. Not in a everybody gets a trophy kind of way. In a very clear theistic way. God made this person way. And now God gives this redeemed person in Jesus purpose and meaning, and a home, and a family. And how do you unlock all of this? Not by spiritual self-help, not by telling people to think better about themselves, not by a kind of Tony Robbins-like life coaching seminar where you learn to think in new patterns. No, through the gospel of grace. The way to be lifted up is to be brought low. The way to be lifted up 
in this strange, subversive irony of the Christian gospel is to be brought low. It is in knowing how bad we are, how sinful we are, and then confessing that to God and repenting of it that we then get to experience how great God is. The gospel unlocks all of this. But it's already present, even before conversion, in the Imago Dei, every person being made in the image of God. Second point out of four here. The gospel makes us hate our sin, selfishness, and weakness. The gospel makes us hate our sin. We think of a passage in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The gospel makes us hate our sin and want to put it to death. I remember a few years ago, I was at a park shooting around. I was sharing with some of the guys at dinner tonight that I'm a basketball fan, um, not by virtue of personal um, abilities necessarily, but simply because of interest. Anyway, I'm shooting around, and I see this dad playing basketball with his son, which on the face of it is a good thing. Uh, But then I watch the game a little bit more between the two, and I see that the dad continually blocks his son's shots. He swats every shot. The kid cannot, can't even get a shot to the rim, let alone make a basket. And it was hard to watch. I don't know if you've ever been around uh, an older guy like that who is so ridiculously competitive. Um, It's hard to watch. You want to go up to the guy and punch him in the arm and go, buddy, can, can you tone it down? In other words, this dad, this dad was so insecure, so insecure, that he couldn't let his son make a basket on him. Think about the level of insecurity that represents. The, the lack of like self-worth this guy must have, that his, if his son scores on him, you know, his day is ruined or something. When I saw that take place, I thought, that, that is... That is a little encapsulation of what men face, I think, often. We are tempted to be selfish. We are tempted not, for example, to allow our sons to flourish. We are tempted not to put to death what is earthly in us. But you look at this passage from Colossians, and you recognize the militaristic manly language that Paul uses about sin. What does he say? Deal with your sin gently. Treat your sin kindly. No, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists out several sins. When God saves you, God does not give you a makeover. God, as I've heard Stephen Lawson say, God executes a takeover. Conversion is not a makeover. It doesn't make you look better. It doesn't make you look more pleasant in your public appearance. Conversion in the name of Jesus Christ, salvation, is a takeover. It is God 
taking hold of you for himself and remaking you. And there's no other kind of conversion. That's not an extreme form of conversion. That's not a particularly intense conversion. Every conversion in the name of Jesus Christ is a takeover by the Holy Spirit of every single person. No believer, no man, therefore, for our purposes tonight, no man has any excuse in terms of his sin. God makes us hate innately, instinctually, every sin that is in us. That's what Paul is promising us here in Colossians 3, that we have the power to kill our sin, to put it to death. And that is what the gospel of grace does. The gospel of grace makes you actually not want to be that selfish dad that can't let his son score a basket on you. The gospel of grace makes you want to be a husband who doesn't simply take his wife for granted, but treats her well. Um sends her out on a weekend by herself so that she can breathe and not be asked a thousand questions per day. True story in my home. It's about 800 questions per day, actually, but with three tiny little kids. In our sin, we naturally want to be coddled. We want it the easy way. And this, I think, is a secret to evangelizing and discipling men. We have been trained that we should dumb things down for men today. We have been trained that, that boys can't really get that much done, that girls are going to be the achievers in school, and so we should dumb things down for men. Think about how men are represented in commercials and ads. You've got one commercial after another where a guy is an idiot or a goofball, you know, he can't keep his stuff together. I think about the Klondike commercials where if the guy listens to his wife talk about her day for 10 seconds, then he gets a Klondike bar. It's actually a pretty funny commercial. But um, the point is, the point is, this guy is being pictured as if, you know, doing basically human things means that he gets an award. And here's the thing. We've got to not set the bar low for young men. We've got to set it high. We've got to set the bar high for men. That's when men come alive. That's when boys get a gleam in their eye. Too too often in this culture, in this society, boys are told that they're never going to amount to anything. They can't concentrate. Um, They're going to be lapped in their classes, you know, by the girls. And so as a culture and society, we are in a long-term project of massively lowering the bar for men and for boys. And guess what happens when you do that? Men drop out. Boys drop out. Guess what they will do, though? They will gravitate to a new challenge. They will go into a very risky place. They will follow anti-heroes. They will follow gang leaders. I I don't know who it is. They'll follow somebody. Men want to follow leaders. Men want to follow those who they see as adventurous and heroic and tough and courageous. Men are always going to follow somebody like that uh, when, when it's really put there in front of them and they have access to that kind of leadership. The church, then, the church needs to be a countercultural force and it needs to set the bar high for men. It doesn't need to tell them how little they can do, it needs to tell them how strong they can become in Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean that what boys need is the equivalent of a Bobby Knight kind of Christian experience, okay? It's actually not where I'm transitioning. I'm not trying to say that what we should do is harangue young men, make them feel awful about themselves, beat them up, 
tell them they're never going to be anything. That's not what I mean. It might sound like I do. You might be, you know, building in a version of your coach from peewee basketball or something or high school sports who did that. That's not what I mean. We have to simultaneously set the bar high, but then coach guys to meet that. That's what it means to be a Christian leader. You, you set the bar high. You call men to a high standard as a husband, as a father, as a worker in the church, as an employee, wherever he's employed, right? You set the bar high for him. But then when he doesn't meet it, you help him. You coach him. You love him. You come alongside him. You, you speak words of correction to him and you speak them directly because you're not going to speak in a feminized way. But, but you, you help him along. So, so that's what we do as believers. That's the difference between us and a kind of traditional Bobby Knight sort of culture. Bobby Knight had a vision of manhood that is somewhat similar to, the, I think, the biblical view. He understood that he had to challenge young men to, to hit a standard, but he was not the kind of guy who would come alongside them and work with them. What does Jesus do with the men that he disciples? He sets the bar impossibly high for them. Think of his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Matthew 5 through 7, which his apostles are supposed to embody, right? They're supposed to be the, the ones that, after Jesus leaves, people look to and go, Oh, yeah, we're supposed to do it like them. That is an impossibly high standard. But what does Jesus do with even his apostles? What does he do with Peter? He restores him. He doesn't cut Peter off. Think about that. Think about what that means for you and me and how we interact with our children, with loved ones, with the men that we're discipling, with the men in our church who frustrate us. What, is, what does that mean for us? We keep that bar high, guys. We are, we are not being like the culture. We are not telling men they can't become something. But we also coach them. We help them. We especially give them a gospel-fired understanding of who they can be. So third, the gospel lifts up our head and makes us more than conquerors. Makes us more than conquerors. You think of Romans eight thirty-five to 37. Apostle Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I think that this is the missing teaching in the modern church. We are more than conquerors through Christ. The gospel makes us fully what we are supposed to be as a man, just as it makes women what they are fully intended to be as a woman. Our manhood and womanhood, depending on what sex we are, we're not both, but our manhood or womanhood are supposed to be, that's a controversial matter today, are supposed to come fully to life through the gospel of grace. In other words, Talking about manhood or talking about womanhood doesn't get in the way of the gospel. It fleshes out what the gospel is supposed to do in the life of a man or the life of a woman. Please hear me. Uh, the ethics we talk about from the scripture, the practices, the way we're supposed to live out our faith, that's not causing the gospel problems. That's, that's a picture of what the gospel is supposed to do to take form and shape in a person's life. We are not most manly when we are some kind of uh, secular, self-obsessed, sinful, living it up kind of man. We are not most manly 
when we are uh, the Rob Gronkowski figure catching touchdown passes, <clears throat> acting like an idiot, and clubbing. Rob Gronkowski, for example, as this New Englander can attest, uh, can, can haul in touchdown passes, right? But that is not what makes you most a man. What makes you most a man is being like Jesus. That's what makes you manly. You want to be, be a man? Our boys want to be men. They want to be tough. Who are we supposed to point them to? Basketball players? Baseball players? Hockey players? Choose your sport. Well, we can see traces of true manhood there. These guys take, take on challenges. They're tough, these sorts of things. Those are good things. But the true man is no athlete, right? The true man is Jesus Christ. That's the emblem of manhood. That's, what, that's the heart of Christianity. Christ, Christ conquered death. He did manly things, honestly. I don't mean that in a macho sense. I mean it in a directly manly sense. He defined manhood for us. Jesus took on impossible odds. He went to the cross. He laid down his life. That is our image of manhood. Not living for myself, but living for others by the power of Jesus. That's what manhood is intended to be, I think, biblically. So, yes, our our sons, our children, we ourselves will be impressed by athletes. I enjoy sports just like many of you do. I watch them. But... Though I'm seeing traces of true manhood in tough and fearless and, you know, excellent athletes, I've got to always be reminding myself, especially in this 21st century American culture, these are not the true men. This is not the true man I'm seeing in front of me. The true man is Jesus Christ. The guy who has never, the guy who's never hit a three uh, in the final seconds of a game to win it, um, the guy who's never, I don't know, gone hunting or fishing, but the guy who disciples his children and works really hard to put food on the table and opens the Bible on a regular basis after dinner to disciple his family in the faith, that guy is acting like the true man, Jesus Christ. That's the manhood we most need. It's not that we sneer at other, other men that we see on TV or elsewhere. But we, we have to go back to, in the church, in the church, we have to go back to the foundations of manhood. What is it that makes you a man? Too many men, even Christian men, feel like because they weren't some kind of heroic athlete, they're not really a man. What makes you really a man is being godly. What makes you really a man is loving your local church and serving it faithfully. What makes you really a man is not leering at women and betting all sorts of them. What makes you really a man is loving one wife all the way, 65 years. What, what our boys should not want is to go to some college and, and fall into lust with all sorts of women. What our boys should want is to have a seven-decade marriage. That's manhood. That's manhood. Seven decades, faithful to one woman, out of the image of the true man who laid his life down for one bride, the church. That is manhood. But all around us, the culture is pulling at you and me and at our, at our children and grandchildren and telling us that Jesus is not true manhood. Jesus can look a little effeminate if you define him by some sort of cultural standard because there's no catching passes or something in the Gospels. But what we have to see is that Jesus is the true man and he, he did manly work. It took 
It took incredible courage and toughness to go to the cross and die suffering horribly. So what we are learning from Jesus' model is that we ourselves are like him. We are more than conquerors by him. We may never run the 40 uh, in 4-4, but if we, if we will work hard, if we will love one woman, if God gives us a woman to love, if we will, if we will pour ourselves out for our kids, if we will strengthen a local church any way we can, whether it is cutting the grass, pouring the coffee, uh, helping a shut-in in, you know, in our church, uh, an elderly member, whether it's teaching a Sunday school class, it could be tons of different things. That's manhood. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Amen. The church of Jesus Christ offers the world not a version of manhood, true manhood. That's what we offer. That's, that's what our churches should be displaying all the time. Okay, so this leads us to our final point. We'll conclude shortly. Four, the gospel calls us as men to sacrificial service. Calls us to sacrificial service. Ephesians 5, 25 to 28. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, please hear me. We do not seek an easy life for ourselves. We seek a sacrificial life. This is part of that standard, that raising the bar, right? You and I are not going to be happy when we have a low standard. We're going to be bored. What men most need is a challenge. We need a call to become something greater than we presently are. That's when men respond. That's when men are stamped for a lifetime. And the gospel gives us this call. If you have a wife, if you are called to marriage, this is your call. This is your standard. It's to be like Jesus himself. That's the image that is written before your very eyes. So in the image of Jesus and by his power, we lay down our lives for our bride. We lay down our lives for our families. We recognize that this is going to put us into conflict with ourselves. <laughs> with ourselves. <laughs> because you and I don't want to lay down our lives in Adam. We don't want to lay down our lives in our flesh. The old man that pulls at us, we're not the old man any longer, but he still pulls at us. That Colossians 3 passage earlier. We want to be selfish. Listen, I'm like you. I work a hard day. And then I come home and my brain is fried. And what, what do I want to do? Do I want to be dad of the year some days, many days? Maybe later. <laughs> I, I hope for that. But often I want to come home and just crash. And you know what? If you don't have little kids in the house, you may be able to crash. So good for you. Okay, ignore this part. But if you have little kids like me, what do you have to do? Well, you, you often have a wife who has been investing in said children for about nine hours and is ready to almost physically hand you the children when you walk in the door, right? So what, what does somebody like me have to do? I have to fight selfishness like, like I was talking about earlier. And I have to recognize that, that they call it parenting, but it shouldn't be called that. It should just be simply called sacrifice. Yes. That's what it is. 
fatherhood, sacrifice. Just change it. Don't say, I'm a father. Say, I'm a sacrificer. <laughs> and the point will, the point will stick. It's, it's silly, but it's true. It honestly is. That's all, that's all being a father or a mother is. It's sacrifice. Just over and over again, pouring yourself out. At the end of the day, you know, when you have little kids, you and your wife crashed on the couch saying to each other, how are we going to do this tomorrow? Is there enough energy between the two of us to keep these children alive? I hope so. Um, that's, what it, that's what this takes. That's what this does uh, for us every single day. Even beyond the young kids' years. You've got to lay your life down for your wife. That means she's your priority. That means you sacrifice your interest for her. That means... You know, whether you're 25 and, and married or you're 65 or 85 and married, you know, you do things like when it's a date night, you think to yourself, what would she like to do? Now, maybe some date nights she says, I, I don't really care. You choose. Okay, fine. But maybe some nights you say, okay, we're not going to go to an action movie. We're not going to go to the University of Maryland basketball game or something like this. We're going to do exactly what she wants. I have heard, I've heard stories of guys... Uh, who, for example, on honeymoons, you know, visited ballparks with their wife. And the wife was willing. Some, some wives might love that. If, that. if that's the case, awesome. But the wife in question I'm thinking of wasn't a baseball fan. She was willing to go with her husband to these ballparks. And it has left me ever since thinking, how do I do this, you know? We're all tempted to do this. What, what can I do for her that she would enjoy? That is, listen, this may sound far afield from Ephesians 5. I think that's putting it into practice. It's just asking yourself every single stinking day, how can I lay my life down for her out of the overflow of Christ's love for me? How can I, here's that word again, sacrifice. Manhood is not about self. It's about others. I used to play basketball at Gonzaga. Gonzaga, I think they, they say in some places. Gonzaga, right, in, here in D.C. On the West Coast, they say Gonzaga. At least some of them do. It's a dispute. Forget it. At Gonzaga in D.C., right, I would play ball when I was an intern at Mark Dever's church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Some of you know about this church, right? And so I got into a, a kind of regular basketball game. And on this Catholic high school, on the walls, this has stuck with me ever since. It said, Gonzaga, men for others. That's it. <laughs> I don't agree with the many points of Catholic doctrine, but that's it. That's what manhood is biblically. That's what Jesus makes you. He makes you a man for others. Your whole life is for others. It's not that there are these controlled times throughout the day where you and I have to sacrifice. The whole life, you guys, the whole life is supposed to be laid down for others. You know, the world, the world loves evolutionary thinking as a kind of framing concept for, for reality, really, how things came to be. And... Um, the world loves Darwin's, Darwin's principle of survival of the fittest, right? Something you've heard about over the years. You hear that commonly in the culture. You, you know what the church counters with? You know what our core principle is? Sacrifice of the fittest. Think about the Bible. Think about who the fittest was in the biblical mind. Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's our model. It's impossibly high. You're sitting here, you're thinking, this, this short guy is laying a lot on my shoulders right now, and I don't even know who he is. He has parachuted in, and he is saying a ton about what I'm supposed to do. But here's, here's what I'm here to say. This is what the Scripture says to us. Right. Absolutely. This is the standard the Scripture gives, gives us. 
sacrifice of the fittest. Every one of us in all our relationships, all the context God gives us, have to be thinking, how can I as a man show that I, am, I, I belong to the true man and lay my life down for others? You may not be the senior pastor. You may not be the missionary. You may not be the evangelist, or you may be. It doesn't matter. Either way, how can you lay your life down for your family, for your church, and for your neighbors? You see kids in your neighborhood um, who, who have no father. There are kids across town, I don't know, who have no father. What can you do for them? What can you do? How can you lay your life down for them? This is the question that we have to constantly be asking ourselves. This kind of mentality means that we push against a culture where men are dropping out all over the place. And I, I will say a word here to, to husbands. All around us, men are just walking out. They're just walking out on their wife. They're walking out on their kids, their grandkids. I don't know who else, but this is what we say in Jesus. We look our wife and our kids in the face and we say, I'm never leaving. I'm never walking out. No one is taking me from you. I am never leaving. Say that to them. Give them that confidence. Give them that encouragement. Take those precious children, precious grandchildren, gather them into your arms and say, I'm never leaving you. Never. Nothing could separate me from you. Only God and death will take me away from you. Say that to them. Do that in a culture where everything breaks down. Everything dissolves. Fathers are nowhere to be found. Homes are in disarray. The out-of-wedlock birth rate is 40%. The dad doesn't even show up to the hospital room, let alone the house. Say, I'm never leaving. And then, by the grace of God, back it up. Walk, walk in that way. This is, this is what Christ calls us to. So, in conclusion, in conclusion, know this. The core of manliness, as I've said, is this, godliness. The core of manhood is not being like the culture. The core of manhood, as you've heard me say, is being like Jesus by the power of Jesus. You are going to fail in this. I am going to fail in this. This necessitates that you and I agree to own our loser status, if you'll excuse that strong uh, statement. And we will regularly say to ourselves, I don't have to pretend to look good right now. I don't have to pass off my unkind words to my children just now, to my wife just now, uh, as harmless. I'm actually going to own this. I'm going to confess this, not simply to God in the quietness of my heart. That, doesn't, that only cards, uh, counts half ways. I'm actually going to confess this to living flesh and blood and say I was wrong. Those words are going to be so liberating for, for your wife and your children if you will say them. If you will tell people when you sin, when you mess up, I'm wrong. And you don't give it a 10-point nuanced explanation of why you were wrong. People in the scripture rarely confess their sin in that way. Usually people are broken and they simply, they, they scream in some cases, uh, confession and repentance to God. They shout, they beat their chest, they tear their clothes. That's the kind of confession and repentance I'm talking about. No, no excuses, no nuances, no celebrity apologies. I'm sorry if I offended you, right? None of those. I'm sorry, I hurt you, I was wrong. Please forgive me. 
that kind of leadership, that kind of leadership is Christ-like in that it shows that Christ has taken hold of us. Christ was humble. He had no sin, but he was a humble man, and we need to be humble men. So I began by talking about how men today have no shield, and in closing, I would say to you a version of what Spartan wives used to say to their husbands when they would leave for battle. And I've tweaked it because they didn't have any kind of Christ part in it. So here's this. In Christ, come home with your shield. Go to battle against the devil. Go to battle against the flesh, against your sin. So in Christ, come home with your shield or on it. Or on it. Listen. If you are called to testify in the name of Jesus Christ and stand up for him and you lose your job, you you lose everything you have, you lose your life. It's all worth it to come home on your shield if you have died for the right things and especially for the right Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that um, these things that we've talked about, which which are serious things and which none of us remotely lives up to, the way that Christ did. I pray that you'll give us power over our sin, over our flesh. I pray that you will unlock confession and repentance in our hearts. I pray that if there are men here tonight who are trapped in cycles of bitterness in relationships, perhaps in marriage, that they will go home tonight and they will, they will perhaps wake their wife up and say, I am sorry, I am wrong. I pray that you'll do that work in all of us. Help us to be humble, godly men by the power of Christ in us. In Jesus' name, amen.